Okay, so I'm here with uh, Kelly Goldsmith. Kelly, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. Absolutely, it's my pleasure. Great, well, let's get started. So um, I'm just going to ask this question off the top of the bat. Uh, what inspired you to try out for Survivor? You know, it was, it was a long time ago when I tried out for Survivor. It was 2001. And if you remember back in 2001, Survivor was really, the, the landscape of reality TV was very different. And Survivor was really the first reality game show, which obviously it's almost hard to remember back to what the landscape of television was like back then. It was so different. So, um, you know, I was obsessed with that show. I, I watched every single episode of season one and every single episode of season two, which, of course, I thought made me an expert into the game and how it all worked. And now that seems laughable now that there's been... 30 plus seasons and you've got people out there that have actually watched 30 plus seasons worth of the show um but of course at the time i was young i was in college and i I felt like i knew everything and so i was really determined to get on the show and i couldn't apply for seasons one or two because i was too young at the time you had to be 21 so i turned 21 in april of of 2001 and I, I think so, and applied for the show, and I, you know, got a personal trainer, and I tried to learn stuff about how to make a fire, and, you know, all kinds of, I read books about being outdoorsy, which, none of which comes naturally to me, and yeah, and I sent in a video, and I ended up making it through the very rigorous uh, audition process, and got on the show. What, what was that experience like, once you found out you were going to go, life on the island, what does that, what does that look like? Uh, it's it's really weird. I mean, the audition process in and of itself is a really weird beast, which there's a lot of people who go through the full audition process and never actually make it on to a reality show. Um, so it's a very different kind of gauntlet because for us, we had to fill out a 10-page application and then send in a VHS video because, again, this was 2001, a three-minute VHS video. <laughs> and you get a call, and they do a phone interview, and then they would bring you out for what they called a, an on-site interview. You got to pick one of, I think, 16 different locations, whichever one was closest to you. And I was supposed to be moving to Philadelphia, and so I picked the location in Philadelphia, and I interviewed there. And so they do, like, an on-camera interview there. And, you know, it's hard because you see these people in the lobby and you know you're all auditioning for the same show. And so you almost the competition starts right away. And um, I really tried to, you know, I tried to get myself on the show. I was just pitching myself every, any way I could. And, um, and then once I made it past that, uh, you, they, they bring all the finalists out to Los Angeles and they put you up in a, in a hotel. They like sequester you like a jury. You can't talk to anybody. And you're in your hotel room all day. And they basically take you out of your room once a day for an interview or a psych test or to meet with a doctor or some sort of physical, they have all kinds of tests they put you through, but it lasts a full two weeks. So, um, and that's, that. I would say for every season of Survivor, which is like ends up being about 16 to 18 people in the cast, they probably process at least 50 people through that stage in Los Angeles. So once again, right, so when you eat your meals or when you go downstairs to get food, you'd always have to have an escort and because they didn't want you guys to talk. But it's still very competitive, right? You're seeing the other people getting their food. You're wondering why they're there. And it's just a very crazy process. Um, So I spent a lot of time thinking about who the other people were and coming up with silly strategies for how I was going to beat them all. Um, And that was all I had to do, right? It was two full weeks of just kind of like mentally simulating what it would be like to, to be in this competition on TV against these people. Uh, but then the actual game itself, once you actually get out there, I we were technically on an island, but it was a very big island. It was the island of Africa. Um, <laughs> it was only, we were Survivor Africa. We're the only landlocked season they've ever had. Um, because it's interesting. I ended up working for them later in life, so I know a little bit of the behind the scenes. But basically the show, Mark Burnett, who's the showrunner of Survivor, who was then and still is, 
he comes from a very like rough, tough, outdoorsy background. His first show was a show called Eco Challenge, where teams of people actually paid fifty thousand dollars per team to compete in one of the world's hardest like all natural endurance courses. And so his perception of what made a good competition was this really hard outdoorsy element. And so basically, you know, season one was the number one show in the country. They kind of didn't know what they were doing. If you go back and watch season one, you know, the production value was a lot lower. The budgets were a lot lower. Um, the editing wasn't nearly as flashy as it is now. And then season two um, was in Australia, which was a lot like season one, but but much rougher. Like people's hair were falling out. People lost 70 pounds. I mean, people looked terrible by the end of the show. And so, and the, it was still the number one show in the country. So Mark Burnett thought, like, okay, this is what the people America wants to see. So it just the show keep, needs to keep getting harder, right? Which was really in line with his worldview on on what what made a good competition. And so my season was in Africa, and we were landlocked. We had no water. We were on a game preserve, so you couldn't hunt for anything. Um, I mean, it was really. It was like, you know, 16 people thrown into a pile of sand and left <laughs> to fend for themselves. It actually wasn't the best television. Like, I think Mark Burnett kind of was a little miscalibrated on America's taste for watching people suffer. So, um, so anyways, we, we dropped from being the number one show in the country to, like, we were the number five show in the country instead. And after our season, they actually realized that the sentiment of the viewers had, wasn't in line with what perhaps the production company had thought. And they switched gears, and they launched this big campaign called Back to the Beach, where they put it back on an island, and it's been on an island ever since. So that's really our, our season's claim to fame, is we were the one season that wasn't on an island, that didn't have a beach, that couldn't, like, weren't in bikinis, we didn't do anything fun. Um, yeah, so lucky me. Um, actually, it was kind of lucky me, because I'm not a great swimmer, so I, I, I'm totally happy with the fact we were in the middle of Africa. <laughs> um, so... It- you transition to academia after that. That doesn't seem like a normal extension of someone's post-survivor experience. Uh, was th- was... Uh, you, you would think that. Uh, you would think that, but I actually think that, I mean, a lot of what got me interested in the show of Survivor is the same exact thing that got me interested in getting my PhD in behavioral decision-making, which is basically, you know, I've always been really, really intrigued by um, people's decision-making processes, both as individuals and as a group and the various factors that come into play there. So my, you know, early interest as a social scientist really dictated my desire to go on the show. I wasn't interested in going the show because I like to starve myself in the middle of the desert, right? <laughs> Believe it or not, that, that wasn't the driving force. Um, it was really that I, it would seem like this really high-stakes social experiment, which for someone who's interested in human behavior was really exciting to watch. And I, I wanted to be part of it. And that, again, is the same exact motivation for why I ended up going back I mean, I went back to get my PhD shortly thereafter, after I came back from the show. So um, it, it was a, to me, I, I see these things as being related. And actually, if you look across, I mean, at this point, they've had over 300 contestants, which is crazy. Um, but they've, they've had, they had another Northwestern professor even on the cast. And so there's, there's a lot of people that have an interest in decision making um, in one way or another, right? There's got to be some reason why everybody ends up at the same place. And like I said, it's not, it's not like The Bachelorette or Big Brother or even... Um, the Amazing Race. It's not a very pleasant show to be on, right? It's hard. So, and a million dollars is great, but I mean, I think even the most optimistic person goes into it knowing that your odds of winning are just statistically not that high for any given person. So, you know, it's, I can't say there's easier ways to make money. It is, I guess, it's only six weeks of your life, but nonetheless, 
um, I think a lot of people who go into the show have some interest in human behavior and decision making and, and understanding yeah, the factors that motivate people and persuade people. And so I think that despite the fact that not everyone comes out of it and gets their PhD in behavioral decision theory, I think a lot of people share that common interest. Well, uh, you know, you pretty much already dug into my next question, which is uh, around your research streams. Um, you told me before that it could be broadly described as exploring the impact of scarcity on consumer decision making. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, what types of stuff outside of, you know, living on Survivor for six weeks, what types of studies right. have you conducted and, and what have you found? Where is that research taking you? So I've done, I've done a lot of different studies, um, mostly in the past five years, on how reminders of resource scarcity affect unrelated consumer decision-making. And this was mainly motivated by the fact that I took this job um, at the Cowlitz School of Management, my first job as an academic, in the um, fall of 2009, right, which meant I was on the job market during the recession in 2007 and 2008. And it was a really scary kind of slash interesting time because basically – we were already dealing with a sustainability crisis and a climate change crisis, and so it pre, you know, before the recession hit, you were seeing these reminders of resource scarcity uh, in various forms of media all the time. And then when the recession hit, there was job scarcity, there was scarcity of money, there's scarcity of time, which is related to job scarcity and scarcity of money. All these things can be related to each other. So, I mean, to me, it just—I've always been someone who gets research ideas from looking at the world around me and trying to make sense of it. And I think, to me, I'm thinking, gosh, you know, consumers these days are just bombarded by these reminders of resource scarcity that happen. It, they're almost unavoidable, right? No matter what type of consumer you are or what life stage you're in, we're just encountering these constant reminders of resource scarcity. And there really was very little, almost nothing, I would say, in the consumer behavior literature on how encountering these reminders of resource scarcity affects your decision-making. And my thought was, I mean, resource scarcity could do a, you could imagine a lot of different predictions, which is why this area was partially so fruitful for the past five years, is we made a lot of different predictions about how it would impact the way that you think, how it would impact the way that you behave, how it would impact the way that you treat other people. And we found that in part because you can imagine, right, human beings trying to survive as a species, I think it has suited us well to be almost hypersensitive to cues about resource scarcity because if we get a signal that our resources are or could become insufficient in the future, we need to adapt our behavior if we're going to survive, right? So I think it's an almost primal response that we evoke from people. And this, I should say, is just who do we run our experiments on? It's mainly college students, participants in our online panel. These aren't the chronic poor. These aren't people living below the poverty line. This, these are just sort of everyday folks with everyday resource levels, um, and, they're, and, and even these people are really hypervigilant about reminders of resource scarcity to the point where you, know, you expose people, we'll expose people in the lab to what we call these everyday reminders of resource scarcity, and it evokes a pretty big response on all kinds of different dependent measures. So our first um, project that we did in this vein was on how reminders of resource scarcity basically impact the way you allocate resources or the way you share with other people, right? And the notion is you could imagine two different predictions, right? If the world is running out of stuff, in a certain way it benefits everybody for us to band together and share and be communal, right? And if you remember back in 2008, even the way advertising was being portrayed, a lot of messages were really family-oriented and communal in nature, and there was this whole kind of bent about we're in it together. And as a, as a marketing person, right, at my core, I'm very much interested in how these things translate into actual consumer behavior and actual persuasion. And so you start thinking, well, 
okay, this advertising is feel good. Let's all hold hands as things get tough advertising. It sounds nice in theory, but in practice, are we? is this persuading people, right? Does this make people actually want to band together in times when the world is running out of stuff? Or, in fact, are people motivated to kind of get theirs first, right? I, I think about it almost like, you know, when you get on the plane and they say, put your mask on yourself before you help, you know, children, et cetera. It's almost like that's the kind of behavior we get when we remind people about resource scarcity, um, people aren't looking to, to quote unquote, like screw other, screw over other people. They don't become malicious. They don't become vindictive. They don't become excessively hoarding such that they're just depriving other people for fun. But rather, when you remind people about resource scarcity, they really are interested in preserving the, their individual welfare first. And then, you know, they'll worry about everybody else later. So, we have very robust evidence for that, uh, and that was our first project in this area. And I think it was an important project because at the time, like I said, both practically from an advertising standpoint but also theoretically from an academic standpoint, people didn't really know if resource scarcity wouldn't, in fact, make people more communal or uh, more pro-self or sort of self-oriented. And, uh, and we found robust evidence for the latter that people, in fact, did become more self-interested uh, when they're reminded of resource scarcity, which we tested in lots of different ways, with from economic games to whether or not they wanted to get to charity to, you know, all kinds of different dependent measures we used in that project. So that was where we got started. And uh, from there, we've done all kinds of different stuff. Um, We've looked at, we did a related project, which I'm working on actually today, about reminders of resource scarcity and how thoughts related to scarcity impact your tendency to cheat. Uh, to Basically, we have tasks people can do in the lab where they cheat to earn more money. And again, these are Northwestern undergrads that have been running most of these on, and so these aren't people that, that you think of as cheaters at the game of life necessarily. But in fact, we find that even these mundane reminders of resource scarcity they basically make people seek the kind of easy way out or the easy win, right? They're more willing to cheat to get ahead. They, sorry, I'm getting the call. They're not more willing to work hard to get ahead, which I think is interesting. And um, and what else have we looked at? We've looked at how resource scarcity impacts uh, the way people attend to information in the environment. And again, taking this back to my interest in marketing, we find that people who are reminded of resource scarcity are much more likely to, to attend to information that kind of informs um, the, what, what's in it for them, right? And so if you manipulate information in the decision context that basically tells the consumer whether or not this is a good deal, people who have encountered these reminded of resource scarcity are much more likely to adapt their behavior accordingly. If it's a good deal, they'll work harder to get it. If it's not as good of a deal, they work less hard. Whereas, honestly, people in our control condition can sometimes be really insensitive to the information that's right in front of them. It's almost like they're either lazy or they're not motivated to pay attention or they're distracted, etc. But these reminders of resource scarcity really give people a laser focus on what's in it for them that can play out in terms of, like I'm saying, the information they attend to. And then ultimately, it, we find it can improve their decision-making because they're more likely to behave and adapt their behavior in a way that's relevant to the information that we're giving them, if that makes sense. That was a lot. No, that's that's very informative and uh, extremely insightful. Um, switching gears for a second, so looking at your CV, you've won uh, too many teaching awards at Kellogg for me to count. Uh, Thank what, you. What's the secret to your success in the classroom? Oh, it it is it's always evolving. Um, you know, I don't think I have found the I don't think there is one secret. I think really if you want to be a good teacher in a business school, and probably this is true of being a good teacher anywhere, you need to always be on your toes and update you know, you 
you can't be allergic to hard work, right? You always need to update your materials. You always have to be sensitive to what the students are interested in. So, for example, you know, I've taught, I've taught market research for years, and if you teach during an election year, there's tons. There'll be people being bombarded with poll data, and they're being bombarded with, you know, this focus group said this about that person, and you want to break down what that actually looks like and how they're actually doing the testing, and can we actually take these results seriously, and what are the factors that tell us if those results are valid or not? And But if it's not an election year, you, you're not going to use election examples. You know, in a year where, you know, this year um, in the spring quarter, there was the incident with the Kardashian and the Pepsi ad that was racially insensitive. You could talk about that from a marketing strategy standpoint. How did that ad make it through ad testing, right? So you can break down what, is, what exactly ad testing is and how they might have missed out on this and why. So I think there is – you just have to be sensitive to – what's going on at the given moment and how that's relevant to your students, but always kind of keep a higher level perspective on the broader lessons that they need to take away and how these kind of whatever's going on that quarter can fit into the broader context. So different instructors have different philosophies basically on, you know, are the students the customer or are the students the product, right? So is it our job to shape them into what we think they need to be versus, you know, again, are we there to serve them and cater our course to them? And I think that the best instructors that I've seen are people who understand it's a little bit of both, right? Like the onus is on us as the instructor to make sure they understand what's going to be relevant for them moving forward in their careers. But we also have to be humbled by the fact that they know best oftentimes what's most relevant to them moving forward in their careers. And it could vary class to class. It can vary year to year. It can vary student to student. So I think you just need to be really adaptive to what the student's are going to benefit most from and to, you know, again, with a, with a picture, with an eye on the prize, an eye on the higher level picture, kind of cater your class accordingly. So what are you looking forward to most about the move to Vanderbilt? Oh my goodness, so many things. Um, I'm really excited about the move to Vanderbilt for a lot of reasons. Um, number one, I think, well, this is not number one, but I do think Nashville is awesome and I'm really excited to live in Nashville as a city. Um, so that's just, something that's going on in the background. But Vanderbilt is a university. I've always really liked Vanderbilt. Um, and the Owen School seems amazing. The, the quality of the colleagues there is is really unparalleled. And I, I'm personally excited to be in a business school um, that's a little bit smaller in size. I think it allows you to be a little bit more agile. If you're in, you know, a big, big school like Kellogg or Duke or um, Wharton where you have just literally hundreds of faculty, um, it's hard to be agile because a lot of systems and a lot of bureaucracy has to be in place just to make, you know, <laughs> keep the school moving forward, right, day to day. Uh, whereas when you're at a smaller school, it actually allows you to be more adaptive and agile, and, and I think that that's exciting. Um, and so I'm, I've had a great experience here at Kellogg as well, but I'm really looking forward to being in a place where, um, I don't know, I can contribute to the best of my ability and, and try to adapt my teaching and bring my teaching and to the students there and learn what the students need and, and give it to them to the best of my ability. Well, we're certainly looking forward to having you here. Um, it's going to be great. You guys are going to love it. <laughs> I know it. I know it. Um, Kelly, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate uh, taking the time out to, to converse with me. And, um, and again, we're looking forward to having you here in the fall. Um, absolutely my pleasure. I cannot wait. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Kelly.